Rational discussion, common sense, open debate. RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. Now, you may remember last March, in fact, it was announced at the protested parliament that uh, the outcome of the judicial review regarding defence and police and the mandates. And that was well received. I remember seeing the live feed of that. And a lot of people thought that that would make a big difference. It was a game changer. But it didn't turn out to be, though it's not over yet. So joining me to talk about this, the appeal that's coming up and really the journey of military people, particularly in this case, who were mandated out of the military and probably want to go back in, but we'll find out if that's possible, is Roger Earp, who is retired Lieutenant Colonel. Roger, welcome to our program. Thanks for coming in. Thanks very much, Paul. It's, uh, it's an honour to be here. Thank you. Great to have you. And Paul Stanaway, Class 3 Chaplain. But you are an officer, Paul, aren't you? It's yes. an officer rank. Yes, I was and until I was also discharged um, last year. I was an equivalent major. Uh, that's right. And um, Roger, you'd be very familiar with Waiuru, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, reasonably familiar with Waiuru. Well, we have spent a few few years in Waiuru. So, yeah. yeah, training, particularly training uh, army officers up there. It could be a bit of a harsh winter there, right? Uh, yes, yes. You can, get, you can actually get... Four seasons in one day in Wairu, even right. in summer. Yeah. I, I recall one year we were there, it snowed in February. So oh, wow. okay. you never know what you're going to get in Wairu. Yeah. Uh, even just driving through, you don't know what you're going to get. No. All right, guys, thanks for coming on the program this morning. Let's um, let's go back, you know, just to have a bit of history so people can sort of fill in some blanks if they have them. So I mentioned at the start what happened back in March 2022, announced to the uh, protesters at Parliament. I think it was the first that we heard that uh, you'd been successful in your, what was a judicial review case uh, mm. on mandates in the military. Just to take us back to that time, what actually happened there? A bit of a story here, Paul, but initially the Defence Force um, was going to uh, mandate the vaccinations by including it as part of our of, of the Defence Force's vaccination protocol. So this is this is back in 2021, um, so probably mid to early 2021. So that was the initial approach they took, uh, and there was quite a lot of resistance from across the force uh, in terms of them doing that. So um, our understanding is they went to government, uh, and government then gave them a, a legislative mandate. So it mandated for both defence and police that that you had to be vaccinated. Uh, and so at that point, a number of us uh, got together, um, probably initially, and, and Paul can probably comment better on, on this than me, but really to support each other. Because um, it was a pretty, it was a pretty um, challenging time for many people, actually um, an extremely challenging time for many people in terms of the way they were treated by their commanders, by their colleagues, by their peers. Um, and so, and, and we were completely isolated. No one knew who hadn't been vaccinated and who had. So um, from, from recollection, it was Paul that set up, set up a group to provide support. And then out of that, we decided that we would challenge this decision. Uh, and we got some we got uh, legal advice from um, Frontline Law, from Matthew Haig and his team, and, uh, and put forward a judicial review, which was the review heard in, in, um, in February. Um, we, we also did that with police. So we linked up with, with the police force, those in, in the police force that has, hadn't been vaccinated, 
uh, and collectively put through uh, or, or um, submitted this judicial review to the to the court. I talked with Peter McCullough, the now famous cardiologist uh, yeah. in the US uh, a week or so ago, and we, we touched on the US military. Yeah. And I asked him if he thought that, um, you know, the mandating of vaccines in their military caused any sort of national security issue given, you know, weakening of the force, et cetera. And what he said was, it was quite interesting. He said, what happened was when you tell someone in the military what to do like that, you break them. It changes, it changes them. I wonder, does that apply here? I know that sounds quite dramatic, but that's what he said. I might jump in there. If you don't mind, I'll just uh, briefly explain the background as to how some of the members of the Defence Force set up our peer support group in the first place. So sure, go for it. I, I remember early on there was um, some emails that came out. Um, the Defence Force was going to be some of the first people in the country to um, have access to the vaccines for COVID, and uh, and it was it was very you know well written. It was very long, and it was talking about the need for informed consent and how everyone was going to be respected. And at the time, I was reading it and I was going. Yeah, okay. Um, if if that's the case, why do you why do you need to be so explicit about these things? So I was a little bit skeptical. I went for my interview um, to to discuss receiving the vaccine. Everybody in uniform had to go um, to the defence health centres where they were located, and they went through the process of receiving information and and asking questions and doing consent. So I started asking questions, which I think somewhat surprised the nurse I was talking to. Uh, and um, she gave the usual stuff that everyone was being told, you know, it's 100% safe and 95% effective. And I think my first question was uh, about safety. Um, how could 100% safety ever be proven for any medical intervention? That's ex- that's that's just very unlikely. Uh, and also tried to discuss some of the issues we were beginning to see in other countries. Um, she, she, she couldn't really answer. I then asked the question, um, what's it 95% effective at actually doing? Uh, and she also, she struggled to answer the question. She started to get agitated. My meeting ended with me saying, look, I've got some reasons why I, I am not going to consent to receiving this vaccine at this time. Uh, and I need, I need to, to ask more questions and engage more. Almost immediately, that was regarded as a very negative thing to do. I was treated relatively uh, in a relatively hostile way. Uh, I've got fairly broad shoulders. Um, you know, I'm an officer. I've been around in the Defence Force for a long time. It didn't really trouble me too much until I got a phone call from a young soldier, so a private soldier, who actually doesn't have anywhere near as much uh, authority as, a, as an officer does, Um and this person was um, deeply concerned, both because this soldier could overhear the conversation in the room. She was very concerned by the by the reaction to the conversation that I'd had. Um, and then there was that she she so she was a female soldier, or she is a female soldier. Um, she also didn't want to receive the vaccine, and yet when she tried to talk about it with anybody, she'd been rapidly shut down. And and um, she was sensing there was a level of bullying beginning to occur. And I was the only person she knew to call. And at that point, we set up this peer, this peer support uh, group in which um, soldiers, sailors, airmen, uh, civilians and, and officers, eventually, as it became all of us, were able to just encourage each other. 
We were there to encourage each other. And the need for that was very evident. The stories were flooding in. I spoke to hundreds of people in defence. The stories were flooding in about mistreatment, uh, about things that were were very bullish. I mean, I would say some people were very badly bullied. Soldiers were phoning me and they were talking to somebody who understood them and they were bursting into tears on this issue. The, the, the harm to people's emotional states as well as, as people's sense of mana, you know, was being was huge. It was very significant for a large number of people. And I can't overstate that, really. So, yes, I, I, I think Peter McCullough, um, it, his statement was dramatic, but I think there are a number of people in which this has shaken, shaken people, even soldiers who are actually quite robust to people. For me personally, it's around the values of the organisation. So um, the Defence Force for, for uh, all my career, over 32 years, has had values, Army, Army, and then they became Defence Values, comradeship, commitment, courage, and integrity. Um, and we, we, we inculcate our new soldiers and our new officers on the basis of those four values. Uh, and they are, a, a, I would say, a fundamental um, aspect of being, being a member of the Defence Force. And, and for me, these values were, were totally ignored. Uh, each one was was actually uh, directly undermined by the process that the Defence Force took. And, and for me, I believe that's the reason why there's been the response there has been in, in our military and I'm sure in other militaries. It, it has fundamentally um, undermined the trust that individuals have in the organisation because the values have been have been ignored, totally ignored in this in this context. Yeah, um, this is a common theme. Uh, Paul, what you just described, mm. I've heard from teachers, I've heard from the uh, health sector, and it's, I mean, you have the military variation of it, but it's basically the same. And then, Roger, hearing about those values, it, it makes people wonder how they could be just thrown overboard so easily, just like that. Any any ideas on that? Well, I, I suppose our observation is that, that there was obviously significant uh, political influence across all government departments, not just defence, uh, in terms of, of uh, towing the line, I suppose, and... Uh, and, and, and defence was one of the, the first organisations, if you recall, that I, I suppose it really became an issue along with, with health um, because we were manning the MIQs. Mm. Um, so there was a need to get our people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Oh, I and see. so I, I think I think that government, well, this is obviously my opinion, but I have to wonder if the government wanted to use defence as a bit of a test case in terms of saying, hey, look, our defence force has all got vaccinated. Um, there's no issues here. You know, everyone else, you should be comfortable about this. And so um, any opposition to, to getting vaccinated really wasn't well received at all. Yeah, but a military force is there. Okay, MIQ is at the very low end of what a military force is there to do. And I guess common sense tells you a military force has to be ready it has to be prepared and ready, even if, you know, you're going for decades in peace. You've got to be ready. And you're taking away that readiness and that capability in just one moment. It's it's not thinking about what defence is at all, is it? Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I, I, I mean, going back to those values, I mean, one of the main reasons that we have such an entrenched uh, system of values in defence is, is because... 
the defence force in in um, Western countries, at, at the least, and probably most countries of the world, is a it's a it's a vital part of any nation's democratic thinking. It, it defends uh, democracy. That's what the New Zealand Defence Force is designed to do: and democracy in New Zealand. And so we have values which are supposed to uphold that democratic system. And it's really important that those values are maintained at all times in peace, because when conflict occurs and when we get involved, um, those values, are, are, are they come under pressure simply by the nature of the job. And this is where, uh, I mean, me as a, as a minister, I've always been highly supportive of democratic nations having a professional military that is well ready, um, because unprofessional militaries um, tend not to operate with a high degree of values within a theatre of conflict. And you're right, I think undermining the values, which then led to the undermining of, or our misalignment of values, led to the undermining of, of, of staffing. You know, people were kicked out. People have chosen to leave of their own accord because of how they were treated. Um, that That will have affected the operational effectiveness and readiness of, of any defence force that was mandated. Yeah, Roger, I want to ask you in just a moment about your situation because you, you fall into that category that Paul was just describing. But I'm, I'm just trying to get a fix on, in terms of the, I guess you've been speaking about the army here, um, and I've asked this question of, you know, the teachers and the, the medical um, area as well. In terms of the overall number that, that did what they were told. Can we assess those who truly believed that didn't have the questions you had, Paul, <laughs> with the nurse, uh, and took it or felt coerced but still did it? Any idea of the uh, the proportionality of that? What, what we do know, um, Paul, is that in, w w there was an OIA submitted in, in May um, and the response from the Defence Force at that time was that um, 678 personnel were either unboosted or unvaccinated out of a, a force, <clears throat> so we're not including Defence civilians, we're including Army, Navy and Air Force, of 9,200 people. So um, that's that's a significant number. That's that's over five percent had chosen either not to get vaccinated or didn't want to take the boosters. Um, in the end, there were only uh, when we came to the High Court uh, last year in September, there were only thirty nine of us left who had been unvaccinated. Um, but we suspect that there were a large number of people that chose to voluntarily leave the organisation because they did not want to get vaccinated. Right. But I'm just wondering how many who got vaccinated did so because of coercion and um, fear for their you know, futures, jobs, et cetera, and those who really believed it, because that would be a telling figure, wouldn't it? It would. I suspect the number is 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 bigger than we'll ever really know. Um, hmm. And I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? The, the psychology of people, sometimes people are led to do things against their will without them even realising um it's it's right. a very clever system of 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 um affecting how people uh, think i i know for a fact that there are many people who are still serving in defense who've come to me since or, or come to any of the members of our groups who've said that they wish they'd never been vaccinated and that they wished they'd heard that um there was a peer support group 
one of the sadnesses I've got is that the defence was so very, very definitive on the fact that people were not supposed to be talking about saying no to each other. Well, again, that's that, that has been an across-the-board kind of thing. Um, anyone who said, even like you were describing, Paul, anything that, that showed any doubt were like, jumped on when they have like a great weight would come down on you all of a sudden for some reason. Very much. Yes. Um, I mean, it's a little, a little, I mean, it felt at the time, certainly, and it still does. It, it feels like it was very much a divide and conquer, isolate people and, and conquer them really. It's how it felt to me anyway. So you, you could argue that at that time bullying was rife in New Zealand defense, bare face bullying. Well, it's difficult. I would say that, yes, that's true. Um, uh, for a number of people. I understand that the organisation uh, has a hard time uh, recognising that because, of course, bullying, it's, it's a very... When you get to the nitty-gritty, there's some specific things that you have to that you have to work with, but certainly emotionally, yes, definitely bullying okay, was emotionally, there. emotionally, yeah, yeah. And having said that, some people did receive more support from their local area commanders than others and and they felt relatively well treated and respected um so some people had it much worse than others you know i don't want to say that everyone in defense is terrible because they're not there's a lot of good folks still in defense and we understand we understand what happened at the time and you know it, it was difficult for folk we get that sorry roger and, and paul i think it comes down to leadership that's my observation uh individual leaders and how they um they process this direction and then how they chose to um, relay it within their own uh, area of command. And as Paul said, there were some some really good leaders who um, chose to get vaccinated, but equally were were um, sympathetic towards those within their command that chose not to. Um, and, and that made a huge difference for those individuals, and, and I'm very fortunate that I was one of those. But in particular, I think some of our junior ranks um, and, um, were really all the brunt of, of some unacceptable behaviour. And, and uh, I actually challenged some of my colleagues, uh, my senior colleagues, uh, on, that, on that very issue because I was uh, hearing through Paul and others of some of this behaviour. It was just totally unacceptable. And, uh, and, and I've, you know, it really, I'll be honest, it broke my heart to, to hear that of the way that some of these junior, you know, junior soldiers and sailors and airmen had been treated. When as an officer, we've got an obligation to look after them. You know what I mean? Uh, in all ways, yep. you know, yep. their, their physical, their mental, their spiritual health, you know, you've got that. That's an obligation that you have. And so, uh, you know, that really, yeah, that broke my heart, actually, when when I heard what was happening and, and uh, I just felt I needed to do something about it. Yeah, you talk about leadership, and we'll get on to the appeal and everything shortly, believe me, but you talk about leadership. Where was the leadership at the top? I mean, you're at the top of the defence force because you have leadership qualities. Here comes something that could affect every single person that you command, that you're responsible for ultimately, and you fall over. You don't stand up for your people. You just let it go. That's not leadership, is it? No way. I'd say it's not. Um, and I'd say that that uh, there was a very much a top-down pressure push. I mean, I felt that I saw it as a top-down thing. I mean... I spoke with my uh, bosses about the concerns I had around bullying, and, and this is other chaplains, and, and they were, they sort of, at best, they did a sort of half attempt at letting people know 
they didn't really take it seriously. And in fact, at one point, I was told to no longer uh, count people I was talking to who were struggling over the vaccine mandate as a pastoral encounter. I was told to no longer count them. Uh, and that was on my own time. Hmm. Uh, so the, the very job of a padre is to care for the um, spiritual and emotional welfare of our people, um, regardless of who they are or where they come from, whether they, regardless of background. Uh, so I felt I was doing that, uh, and I tried to raise my concerns and, and, and was largely ignored. Uh, and that caused me a great, uh, I, was, I was quite sad about that for quite a while. But this particular instant, I felt the system was betraying our people. You're a chaplain. Morality means a lot. Yes. Do you see this, what has happened here, as immoral? I do, yeah. I find, I mean, on, on an ethical, higher level ethical thing, I, I find any, any sort of form of, of medical mandate to be immoral um, because it is the removal of a human being's will and 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 free will and our ability to to have exercise that will uh, in in key issues, particularly over rights of of our own bodies, because you know your your mind and your body are the same thing; they're attached together. It Last is, time I looked, yeah, <laughs> is immoral. Is immoral. I mean, the I mean, we've had moments in history, haven't we, where we've gone down the path of madness, where we've decided that we've decided that we can remove somebody's humanity from them. Uh, I mean, the Nazis were very good at it. I mean, it's a classic example, but they're not the only ones. There's Pol Pot, there's Stalin, Lenin. You know, there's so many examples where if you can remove the humanity from someone else, it goes down the path of madness. So it is an issue of ethics and morality. Um, more specifically, um, bullying in defense is universally agreed as an immoral act. It is wrong. At the very best, it's unkind. And at the very worst, it can drive people into hideous places. Um, and yet, in this issue, we saw a great exception to that. So, yeah, I'd say I'd say there's an integral and greater picture morality that's been abused here. So, Roger, what, did you say 32 years in the Defence Force? That's quite a stretch. And then I bet you never thought in all those years that what would end your career in defence would be this. Yeah, no, you're 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 dead right, Paul. I'd never never considered that I'd um I'd I'd be in that situation. I would never considered that um I would do some of the things that I did, knowing the potential consequences and and knowing that it actually uh, I suppose went against everything um I'd I'd been taught, you know, I've been inculcated as as an as an officer throughout my career uh, in terms of of challenging a decision that that I felt wasn't right, and um, and you know how um, I, I suppose that was that was viewed within the organisation. So um, yeah, it was it was a very interesting time actually. So, how much thinking did you have to do about the ultimate decision? Was it a no brainer for you, or did you angst over it and struggle with it? Because obviously, the end result is there goes the career. Yeah, no, there was <clears throat> there was no hesitation in my mind, Paul. Um, that that I was uh, I had a choice, and and uh, I, I was going to choose not to be vaccinated, regardless of what the consequences were. And uh, and I really felt uh, it was critical that um, that there were some senior officers actually that that were prepared to make that stand um, 
just the, as I suppose as an example for you know for others and there was a number of us sort of more senior people um, that, that did take that stand um, of interest my wife's a, a nurse uh, so she lost her job as well so we were both both lost our jobs um, but thankfully we were on the same page and that, and that made a huge difference and I, I felt so um, blessed actually that, that that we were on the same page and uh, and I suppose we journeyed together uh, in terms of dealing with with the situation. Because yeah, a lot of relationships have been strained or split over this, haven't they? Just I mean, this reverberates out everywhere. Yeah. All just, right. So what was the last day like, Roger? Did you just, like, clean up the office and walk out the door, was it? Well, it was, it was interesting, Paul. So the last day for me uh, at, actually at work, I think, was the 15th of January. Uh, so we got stood down uh, from the 15th of January um, and we, we weren't allowed on a, on a defence camp or base at all um, and, and we weren't allowed to do any work either. So everything, I, you know, all my equipment, my electronic equipment, my, you know, my phone, my laptop, everything was taken off me. I had to hand that in. Um, and then I was in, in no man's land um, through to the, to the court case in, in February, you know, and we won that. You know, we were pretty excited after that. Uh, and we were waiting. The Defence Force said, right, we're now working out how we're going to reintegrate you. I'm sure that's the word they use, reintegrate those who have chosen not to be vaccinated back into the organisation. And then we were told, no, um, no, you're not welcome. Um, you will still be still be removed. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, I packed everything up way back then. Um, yeah. Well, so, yeah, there must have been some excitement with the uh, decision. You must have thought, hey, hey, we're there. We, we got there. And <laughs> talk of reintegration, you just mentioned things were starting to look up. Then what happened? So what, what happened shortly, it was interesting seeing how police and defence had a very different response to this. So the government's mandate was ruled as unlawful. Uh, just late in February. And then uh, in March, police began a process of reaching out to their affected staff members and trying to reintegrate them. Um, some of them wanted to return, some of them didn't. You know, it's the normal you know process. But there was this process of welcoming people back. The government mandate had been overturned and they were welcomed back and that, and that remained the case. Remembering that we were still communicating with our police colleagues on this issue as part of a, part of a, a group we formed together called United We Stand. Um, and um, defence went the other way. Um, they, um, the, I think the Crown filed an appeal initially, so defence sort of pressed pause on, on an official response internally. Um, and then they sort of gave up on that appeal once they realised that it probably wasn't going to be successful. And instead, defence returned to, I mean, we'll call it an internal mandate. It's it's basically a process of baseline instructions. Uh, they returned, they sort of made that a bit more watertight for them, and they said, well, actually, even though there's no government mandate, it's still a requirement of service, and if you don't have it, then each person will be um, assessed individually. Um, I mean, by this stage, I'd, I'd, I'd also been removed from, from service. I had a slightly different discharge process, but it was also... Oh, yeah, do you want to tell, tell us about your one? <laughs> well, I mean, like, so, you know, I, my boss at the time made it very clear to me that, that I was becoming very tiresome uh, to him and to the organisation in trying to speak up about uh, my concerns around the mandates. 
Um, and he actually used that word. He said I was becoming very tiresome. Um, and um, well, wait, wait on that. That's a horrible thing to say, because that's just completely dismissing somebody in, in a sort of like just a, you know, like trying to flick a fly out of your face that's sort of causing you a problem. That, that's that's not very nice, is it? Tiresome. No, it's not. It's not. And he he did, to his credit, he did apologize uh, a, a while afterwards. But I mean, sadly for me, the damage was already done. Um, I mean, the conversation got a little a little heated after that. But uh, the thing that I found most frustrating about that comment was I wasn't just trying to represent myself. I was speaking on behalf of a large number of people. You're a chaplain. Have, You're a bloody chaplain. That's your job. right? You're 100% correct. Yes. Um and, you know, I cared about these people. You know, the reason I was chaplain, I served as a soldier and then as a medic in the British Army. I care. I think soldiers are awesome. I mean, they're, they're bloody rogues, most of them, but they are amazing people. That's why um, people become chaplains, to, to, to care for, you know, these rogues who are incredible people. But after that, shortly after that, so I began this medical discharge process happened to me. And I mean, I got very little communication from any of my bosses. I was given no farewell. My office was packed up by a colleague of mine because I was not allowed to go on to camp. So all of my stuff was done by somebody else. Uh, it was very, it was very, uh, at best, it was rude. At worst, it was very cruel. Um, I wasn't allowed to say farewell to the people I worked with in my office. I wasn't allowed to have a farewell as part of chaplaincy. Um, some friends of mine farewelled me anyway. But uh, yeah, very. And I'm, I'm not, it's not the lone story. Most people who were discharged um, weren't allowed to return to their locations to say goodbye. Um, so it's just like you disappeared. Suddenly Paul Stanaway just yeah. isn't there anymore. Just like Roger Earps, just, just gone. Bing, yep. gone. Okay. Um, so after the judicial review and you talk about the, the police's attitude, so, um, Roger, were you saying that the defence department or ministry or whatever the official name is decided to, what, add the COVID vaccine to the schedule of all the vaccines that we know about, um, sort of added on, and it was kind of outsource the previous situation to that is that the the technique or, or the sleight of hand or whatever you want to call it that they used to maintain this boy they must have doggedly wanted to hang on to that <laughs> yes and and still hanging on to it paul yeah and, and i think um uh as as um paul said it was really an internal mandate so this this gave them the uh the tool to implement an internal mandate around the COVID 19 vaccination uh, and so they just uh, included it on the vaccination protocol and said, uh, if you hadn't been vaccinated, then you were no longer uh, able to operationally deploy. Uh, and obviously, that's a key requirement for us as a servicemen or women um, to be able to deploy, you know, to any part of the world to to meet uh, or, or um, at the direction of the government um, on behalf of, of New Zealand um, to serve overseas or, or, or in New Zealand, you know, the Cyclone Gabriel's you know, a much more recent example of people serving uh, here in New Zealand. Yeah, so they did that. Did they justify it on any sort of data, um, information? Because as you pointed out, Paul, they were saying it was 100%, what was it, safe, 95% effective. <laughs> they could never have known that, by the way. That was a lie. They didn't know that. 100%, so, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you can never get to that anyway, even in the best of things. So, you know, it's like some sort of kid making something up. So they include this, this workaround, but was it based on anything? Did they say, well, here's the science, here's the research, this is why we've got to do it. Or was it just like a checkbox exercise? To be honest, it was probably the latter under the cover of the former. Does that make sense? So they yeah, does. they did yeah. they did have a rationale. I mean, a lot of places felt they had a rationale, didn't it? I mean, the defense force, and it's interesting because the defense force is is officially it is a healthcare provider, and and therefore it comes under all the legislation uh, that healthcare providers have to come under, including the need for correct informed consent and respect of patients, um, regardless of the fact that they're soldiers and sailors and airmen. Um, there was uh, paperwork, man, we've all seen it and we've all known how many holes can be shot through it that, that have come out from MedSafe or various places around the world saying how effective it was and how safe it was and, and how bad it was. I mean, the reality is the Defence Force is, is no stranger to doing very good and complex uh, risk assessment of issues. And I think there was a severe gap in how any of that was understood or orchestrated or done. And I think it seemed to be like a lot of places, this knee-jerk response was COVID bad, vaccine good. Therefore, everyone must have it. Um, you know, we so know simple. That, that, <laughs> if only life was, is so simple. <laughs> the, the science behind exactly how bad COVID was. I mean, the, the risk assessment is based on what is the risk of something happening and what is the severity if something did happen, what, how bad would it be? I mean, that's a very basic understanding of how risk assessment was done. And I think that was severely lacking and the data wasn't being properly looked at. It was just this knee-jerk, COVID bad, vaccine good, everyone have it. And a belief that it's safe and not considering your, your people, that there could be a safety issue there, just, just swallowing it like that. Some of us did raise that issue and we said, well, what about the risk of receiving it? Uh, that statement was never seriously received. That's the first question you'd ask. I mean, if you're going into a battle, what's the first question you'd ask? You know, it would be one of the, you know, the crucial questions that could define the outcome of your engagement. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that, Paul, because one of the critical considerations for any commander is, is the ability to get medical support um, to an injured soldier, sailor, airman, and, and, and from a soldier's perspective, there's one hour you call it that golden hour. Yeah. So any plan that you developed had to cater for that to be able to get that support to wherever that soldier or so, soldier was within that golden hour. Um, so you know it's something that's drummed into us um, throughout throughout our careers. You know, um, especially as officers, that 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 importance you know of being able to uh, to look after your people. <laughs> Yeah, not make assumptions, right? Just don't make assumptions. You can get whacked with making assumptions. Okay, mm. so so this other sort of um, way of mandating came in. Hearts must have sunk back down again at that point. Yes. What happened then? More phone calls, Paul. <laughs> yeah, there were. There were. I mean, by this stage, um, I spent some time in the UK. My family, my parents and sisters are in the UK, my family and I, because I'd lost my job. We'd had to sell our home. We didn't know what we were doing, where we were going. Uh, you know, the kids had to had to leave school. Um, well, what did you say to the kids, by the way, Paul? Well, my kids, are they're now seven and five. Um, so basically, 
um, we tried our best to explain, my wife and I tried our best to explain as positively as we could why we were having to move again. Bearing in mind, military families are quite used to moving. Right. Um, so, they, so they did know that that happened. Um, and I did sort of say, look, the Defence Force has made a decision about my health that we don't agree with. And we think that my health is more important than my job. And my son's... Uh, very much agreed and uh, they understood why we moved but they're very sad about it they still miss my elder son misses his school terribly he still wears his old school uniform on the weekend because oh, he, he feels a connection to it um and um but my my elder son really really dislikes the defense force he he sometimes asks me out of nowhere why did you work for the army in the first place if they were going to be like that now he's seven of course he's it's, it's <laughs> good a naive, questions it's, for a seven-year-old a naive question, but he's clearly feeling, you know, it's, yeah. it's a... That's no, actually a good question. It's a good question. Very good. Paul, do, so, you, sorry, do, you, do you want to mention about the civilians? Because probably the next key well, uh, yeah, challenge yeah, was yeah, the um, civilian stuff. And, and we we only know. assume that, you know, it's all people in camouflage uniforms. Yeah, of course. <laughs> what happened there? Paul, well, I think you know this story better than me, mate. Yeah, so what happened on early on? So um, the civilians were affected by what we'll term as the as the internal mandate slightly later than the uniformed people. Um, they had, uh, I mean, and, and they don't come under the the medical system of the defence in the same way. They still have their own private GPs. Um, there's a, there's a slightly sort of um, different way of, of perceiving it. However, the argument was. That if you're unvaccinated, you are a threat to your colleagues around you. Uh, we've all heard this argument before, and we know that that's just silly. Um, and so they came under this internal mandate process as well. The reality is the Defence Force did not and does not have the same um, power over our civilian colleagues. So the government mandate was really going to affect them. And I started then receiving phone calls from our civilians, our uniformed people, new civilians. They started to share stories. It was all by word of word of mouth and people trying to support each other. They came into our chat groups as well. Fortunately, when the government mandate was overturned, uh, the Defence Force uh, realised that with the civilians at least, um, that was probably a battle too far for them. And our civilian colleagues began, some of them began to return to the workplace under really um, uncomfortable conditions. So they were having to do a, a rat, uh, you know, a rapid antigen test every week. I think some of them, it was even more often than that. They were being told they have to wear masks. Uh, their vaccinated colleagues didn't have to do any of this. Gosh, this is, um, this is horrible. Um, so very, a very segregatory thing. Some of them, again, bosses, some of them had good bosses who said, no, 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 we, we won't worry about that. You know me, you know, I know you, you know me, the team knows it, everyone's fine. And, um, you know, a large number of our civilians, though, they were just told, okay, come back to work now, carry on, catch up with everything you failed to do over the last year sort of thing. And very few of them ever got an apology. There was no reintegration process. No one was um, given any kind of recognition for the wrongs that have been done to them. And that's generally universal. Many of our civilian colleagues have either, even though the mandate no longer applied to them, have either chosen to leave or are actively looking to, simply because of treatment. Yeah, it's a, another source of sadness. It's, a, you know. Again, this is the reoccurring story I've heard across all the other sectors, the same sort of pattern, you know? Yeah, yeah, it is. 
I don't know. Pride and fear do funny things to people, don't they? Um, but uh, again, if you if you take someone's humanity away, um, then then wrong happens. Yeah, uh, Roger. When that um, judicial review announcement came through, then in March that it was made public, anyway, did you think, "Sweet, I'm probably back in"? Were you planning or thinking that you would go back into the service, or had they burned the bridge with you? No, that was my expectation, if I recall correctly at that point, that I'd be returning to defence. Um, and it was interesting that we weren't allowed to return to defence immediately. And, and it went on for a couple of months. We really weren't sure where we stood. And, you know, they were doing this reintegration consideration, whatever it was. Um, so, yeah, that was sort of an interesting time as well. Were they just buying time to figure out a way to to work around, do you think? That's my assumption. Um, I, I don't know why else they would have said what they said. You know, we're looking at, and I recall reading this because um, words, you know, words are important. They mean things, you know, this reintegration. Okay, all right. They're, they're preparing to reintegrate us, um, which we found out wasn't the case at all. So, yeah. Okay, and that would have been a big disappointment to you and many others, I would imagine. Um, what about you, Paul? Were you thinking, okay, I'm probably back in here. Uh, I mean, I'd have liked to have thought that at the time because of the way I was being discharged, i.e. medically. Um, I, I felt that the chances of that were very slim. Um, in fact, it was made very clear to me again by by, by my two-up boss, uh, that, uh, or was it my one-up, but one of my bosses, um, that, that I was leaving one way or another and that I would never be eligible to serve in defence again. Uh, that was made very clear to me on multiple Boy. occasions. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I think for me and my family, I think we realised that we'd crossed the Rubicon um, quite early on in the piece. It was over. Yeah, it was over. Yeah. Okay, so now um, I think it's this coming Thursday, there's the appeal. It's in the, what, the Court of Appeal, I imagine. Court of Appeal, right. yeah. yeah. Wellington. 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 Yeah. I take it you guys will be there at some point, or if not for as much as of the proceedings as you can make it for. Can you outline in the uh, points of that appeal? Maybe you can, maybe you can't, but uh, if you can, it'd be interesting. And what is your expectation? Um, so I suppose just to briefly outline the, the justification for um, challenging the, the judge's decision in the High Court in September last year. One of the key issues was around um, not being deployable. So at any time between 30 and, and potentially uh, up to 50 or 60% of the defence force is not deployable at any one particular time. Um, so the fact that that we wouldn't be vaccinated um, and that made us undeployable, really, we didn't feel um, was, was, was adequate justification for our termination. The UK military never mandated their defence staff. We have 120 uh, defence personnel working over there training Ukrainian soldiers. They will be working alongside uh, UK defence personnel who won't be vaccinated. Um, so there's there's a real inconsistency around that. Um, the, the Navy's had to uh, instigate retention payments uh, for critical trades so they can ensure that they can meet their capability requirements and sail, sail ships. Uh, um, and, and so, you know, the shortage of staff uh, it's critical across all, I'd say, all ranks and trades in the Defence Force at the moment. I've yeah. heard Navy can only really get two ships out at the moment. 
yeah, that's on a good day, I think. Yeah. And that would have come to the fore in the response to um, the Cyclone Gabriel because it took yeah, a while, and it, to, and it, and it took a while to get a ship there, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it did, um, both from a Navy perspective and from an Army perspective. Um, I, I can't comment on the Air Force, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I recall the Defence Force actually saying that they weren't able to um, support in the way they would have liked to due to the critical manning challenges that they face at the moment. Hmm. Okay, sorry, I kind of interrupted you as you're going through yeah, no. Um, justification um, summary there. The uh, the disregard for our, our values, um, we believe, uh, is is a you know is a critical part of our you know the fabric of our organisation, um, and and they were directly challenged. Um, the fact that um, many of our senior officers weren't consulted. So normally in a process like this, um, senior officers would um, be directed to implement action. And then they would do that through the chain of command. That's how the organisation works. However, in the case of, of this situation, the vaccines and imposing the vaccines, um, the decisions were made in Wellington and, and then individual commanders who employed soldiers and sailors and airmen who hadn't been vaccinated were directed what they had to do. Um, and in many cases, our senior commanders, and, and I know one personally who I spoke to, um, weren't even aware of the decisions that were made until they came out on our, uh, you know, on our um, internet page, you know, your, the, the page that declares information to, to large organisations. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, and the reason I say that is because um, when we're talking with the caregivers who were looking after family members at home and being paid, right, and uh, they were mandated or included in the mandate mm-hmm. for health workers and early childcare workers, that they had to be mandated or vaccinated to be paid if they're looking after their family members. It might be a son, might be a daughter or another family member. They had to be vaccinated to get paid. And if not, well, you don't get paid. Now, one person I spoke to qualified for an exemption. The exemption was denied by Christopher Hipkins himself who's now the prime minister. The point I'm making is you've got political people making military decisions. What does he know? He's from the Hutt Valley. What does he know? I mean, I'm not saying it was him. Well, he was the COVID response minister, so he would have been involved. And you saying that the senior commanders, some of them were only finding out on the bulletin board online. You have to wonder where the decision-making is, is going. Yeah. And you know, uh, I would believe if you look at it from a governance perspective, Paul, you know, our senior leaders have more important things to worry about than who's who's vaccinated and who's not vaccinated, in, in my opinion. You know, if if we'd had a great plague and, and there were vehicles going up and down the streets picking up bodies, then then that's a real pandemic. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you can understand a, a reaction like that, uh, you know, a, a very different or a reaction like we saw in that circumstance. But given the situation, um, and and, uh, and I, I do know you know people people died um, as a consequence of COVID, but but it wasn't at, at that end of the spectrum. And so you know commanders, our senior commanders have much more important things to worry about in our opinion, as does Chris Hipkins or as did Chris Hipkins, you know, as a minister, than worrying about this level of detail. And and that to me that's a key indicator that something wasn't right. You know, yeah. we we don't normally our senior leaders don't normally need to be concerning themselves about these sort of issues. Mm. You got any comments to make about that, Paul? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Roger. Again, I think um, I think the government dropped the ball with regards to what was morally uh, correct. And, and sometimes 
um, as Roger has said, the risk of something is so severe that a quick, strong decision is needed. Uh, but that in itself is a moral impetus. Something, the risk of something is so severe, or the risk if it occurs is so severe that somebody somewhere needs to make a big decision for the sake of, of lives for other people. I think we can all agree that um, very, very quickly, we realized that COVID was not going to come anywhere near that threshold of risk. And, and the government had time, and they clearly took time to make the decisions that they did right down into the weeds and I don't think very many people stood back and went, wait a second, is this, is this right? And not just is it right cognitively, is this right morally? Hmm. Are we treating people properly? Um, I, well, that's I, what that, I, that parliamentary protest was all about. All those people that, had made a decision on that. Exactly. You know, freedom is a really important piece of democracy. And sometimes aspects of freedom are surrendered. I mean, soldiers, sailors, airmen, we, we surrender some aspects of, of freedom in order to maintain the greater picture of freedom. Hmm. And I think the government very, very rapidly and senior leaders very, very rapidly decided to devolve the points of why freedom in the first place, simply because they had some... I can't quite figure out what the, the overall agenda was. We've all got theories, but uh, things didn't tie up, did they? I'll probably botch that question. Sorry, mate. But that's, no, no, that's think, things didn't tie up is a really good way of putting it. Um, okay, so <clears throat> let's say you're successful. Um, are you optimistic? And if it's a good decision for you, do you think you will see a return by many people back to the force, or is it too late for that now? I think that's a really good question, Paul. Um, I hope it's not too late for New Zealand and for the Defence Force because quite clearly our Defence Force uh, needs good people and it needs them urgently. Healthy um, people. It needs healthy people, not healthy damaged people. people potentially. Yeah, yeah. it sure does. Um, so, yeah, our, we are confident, or I am. Um, I'm, I'm very confident, actually. I think I think um, Frontline Law has put together a really good case and one of our... our um, Requests, I suppose, what, what we're after is that um, those who have been terminated are allowed to return uh, to service without any further discrimination. Um, and and what I'm really hoping is that will be to be extended to anyone who had served for a period of time and chose to leave because they did not get vaccinated. Hmm. Because we, the organisation, desperately needs those people back, and it is it is one way of getting you know experienced and qualified people back quickly. You know, to train people takes years and years. That's not a it's not a uh, a quick fix in terms of filling gaps. Um, right. But this is is a way that the defence force could use to try and fill some of those gaps. Um, but but I think uh, I'd make the comment that that um, it needs to be handled very carefully in terms of that reintegration because a lot of damage has been done. And uh, and unless the I think unless the organisation is really genuine about um, Sort of saying, hey, we we perhaps we didn't do the right thing, and we'd now like you to return. If they're not genuine, then then I think people won't they people won't return because they know they're going into an environment that's going to be hostile. Um, and and why would you do that? You know, having already been um, already been you know hurt. And yeah. to to facilitate what you're talking about, the high ups 
will have to admit they were wrong. Yeah. Not easy. <laughs> you, you're right. And that's a challenge. I mean, either, either senior leadership needs to have a, a wonderful reflective moment in which the humility that should be embedded within an understanding of leadership. Leaders are, are not supposed to be prideful of themselves. They're supposed to be proud of the people that they leave and humble of themselves so that they can make strong decisions that need to be made, but are able to be proud of the people doing the outpouring of that, that decision. And so it is it is possible. I, I think I think there are a number of people in defense or who have left defense. I mean, a lot of people jumped before they were pushed because they were sick of it, to be honest. They were sick of the uncertainty and the fear and the what's this going to do to my family? And it, it caused a lot of stress for a lot of folk. Some of those will probably not return. Some of them have got new jobs now and new lives and they've carried on and they don't want to look back. Some, however, particularly some of our younger people, um, you know, their careers were just starting. They'd done right, years, of course, of course. years' worth of training. They had so much passion, so much to give, and and so excited to be wearing the uniform, you know, with the flag on the arm and part of this organization that espouses such good things. Um, and look at the history of it. Crikey, yeah. look at the history. Exactly. Exactly. The New Zealand Defence Force uh, has a lot to look back on and go, man, they were, they were giants behind us, and we want to be giants for the people in the future. They'd be turning in their graves, wouldn't they? They, they would. My hope is that senior leadership is either able to have a reshuffle or a wonderful reflective uh, process in which a level of humility can occur. They will be, there will be some trust that needs to be re-earned, but I think a number of people would be delighted to return back to the Defence Force and carry on with the passion that is within them. Roger, will you go back? No, I, I won't return, Paul. I've decided at this time I, I don't intend to return to the organisation. So even, even if we are successful, then um, then I'll, I'll submit my resignation and, and leave. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, what a fascinating um, discussion, chat, interview. I don't know what you call it, but... Uh, it's been really interesting to hear what you guys have had to say on behalf of, of all the others. Is there anything we've missed? Is there anything more that you want people to know about related to this case or anything that we've been talking about? Because I don't want to miss anything. There's a couple of things. We talked a lot, a lot about defence. Look, defence really, um, a lot of people in defence really love this nation and they really love the people within it. And uh, and we know, and we know that we that we stand alongside a lot of other groups, you know, teachers and, and, and medical people. It's just, you know, scratching the surface. Um, and we have really valued positive messages that we've seen that have come up on the United We Stand website. Police and Defence have really enjoyed engaging with other people and sharing encouragement with each other. So thank you for that. And the other thing is to is to is to really recognise Matthew Haig and um, Ali and others who work for Frontline Law. Who um, would you believe it? Yeah, you know, a bunch of lawyers who are also good people. Uh, astonishing, um, <laughs> uh, but um, they have worked really hard. I mean, we felt really cared. They're not just doing a job; they care about the job that they're doing. And I do want them to have some sort of recognition. All of us people in our signal groups really love those guys, and I, I just want to sort of finish with with that positive note. 
you know there's a lot of care in our in our groups for the country uh, for Matthew for frontline law and 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 for people like you Paul who are who are trying to talk about these important things that haven't been discussed for some well there's a lot of air that needs to be cleared yeah and really it hasn't been up till now so I think it's really important that we even if it's belated that we understand you know the effect on the various groups in our country we need to know we need to know really clearly so this has been another piece of the picture uh mm. roger anything you want to say before we we finish yeah i suppose i'd just like to make the comment Paul. i hope i hope this hasn't come across as as being a you know a negative yeah negative interview um, because uh, what I'd like to end with is, is how important the Defence Force is um, as an organisation for, for our nation, um, for us as a democracy. Uh, it needs to be well-led. It needs to be well-equipped. Um, our, our soldiers, sailors and airmen need to be well-trained. Um, and, and so ultimately, um, I think it'd be fair to say that, that the vast majority of us just want the best for the New Zealand Defence Force. And we're, we're really hoping for a successful outcome. We're hoping that the Defence Force would accept that outcome if, if it should go our way. And, and we'd really like to see that opportunity for people to return to the organisation should they choose to do so and be accepted. You know, not to, for the discrimination to be put aside and, and to be accepted, um, you know, as a, as a fellow service member. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how I'd, I'd like to end. Um, you know, I feel very passionate about the organisation that I've served for many years, and, um, and, and it's critical. It's critical for our country. Um, mm. Well said. I want to thank you for your service, Roger and Paul. Thank you. Us average citizens do hold you people in high regard. You know, that sort of goes without saying, actually. And it's really disappointing to see that the, the values that you've talked about were not upheld. And I know that's not that positive. I think on the whole, it's it's been positive because we've gone through the story and we and we're heading towards hopefully a positive outcome. But um, that's sad that that happened. Anyway, thanks so much for coming on the program and taking us through that. It's been really interesting, and all the best to everybody from us. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks for the opportunity. So many people treated so terribly. And Roger Earp, retired Lieutenant Colonel, is one of the four names on the appeal that will be heard this Thursday, April 20th. Good luck to them. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.